as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am one who, who views the Bible as God's very word to mankind. And there are certain convictions in my heart that are like grounded in rock. I mean, they are set in stone and there is absolutely no moving them. And then we start a study through the book of Revelation. And those strong convictions of mine that are set in stone, well, the book of Revelation for me is like a cement truck pouring a fresh load of concrete on that foundation in stone and locking in that, sur that firm foundation even tighter than before. For me, that's what studying the book of Revelation has been like, like for me. It's like, it's like locking in tight all of those convictions. It's like pulling everything in the New Testament together nice and tight. Let me give you a couple examples about that. So like in the New Testament, there is a clear path to salvation. You read the New Testament and, and you can easily find it. And that path is through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So in other words, what's very clear from reading the New Testament is that those whose faith is in Jesus are saved. Now, now, Jesus even talked about this in John chapter 14, verse 6, very famous passage of scripture where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' very own words like, hey, salvation, getting to the Father, eternal life. There is only one way to those things and that is through me. And the New Testament explains what does through Jesus mean. Paul wrote all about this, 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 uh, this concept of, uh, of salvation, what it means to be saved. One of those places was Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 10. Paul said it like this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What is also a reality in the New Testament is this very clear truth, that salvation is available to everybody, but not everyone will take hold of it. In fact, there will be more who don't take hold of it than those who do take hold of it. In fact, even Jesus admitted this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, when he said these words. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So there is a saved and there is an unsaved reality in the New Testament. But when you come to the book of Revelation, if there was any doubt in that reality that there is saved and that there is unsaved, then when you read Revelation... That idea gets firmly cemented as unmovable truth. What Revelation makes crystal clear is that you are either on God's team or you are on the devil team, the devil's team. There is this clear line drawn in the book of Revelation about that very idea. You're with God or you're with the enemy. Jesus, in the very beginning of the book of Revelation, when he's writing letters to the churches, we come to Revelation chapter 3, and Jesus has a strong word of rebuke for the church in Laodicea. And in chapter 3, verse 20, we read these words from Jesus. He says to them, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So obviously Jesus is expressing this reality 
He said, I am on the outside and I am looking in and I so desperately want you to answer the door and let me in. He goes, I want to come in and eat with you. You know, to, to eat with somebody, especially back in John's day, this first century church, to eat with somebody, boy, that expresses this willingness, this desire to be in a close relationship with somebody. It's like, hey, let me into your house. Let's do some life together. Let's eat together. I mean, that's part of the reason why during Jesus's ministry, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day had such a hard time with Jesus and why they scandalized him. It's because he wanted to have a meal with prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinners. And they observed this and they said, who is this guy, Jesus, that he eats with sinners, that, that Jesus wanted, wanted to do life with them. He wanted to come into some kind of relationship with them, a relationship that would lead to salvation. So Jesus like, I'm on the outside and I want to be on the inside in your life. And all I need you to do is to let me in. That same call is still out there today. Jesus says, I'm knocking, open the door, let me in. I wonder how many of you are watching this today and you hear Jesus knocking, but you have not let him in yet. The very next verse in verse 21, it says this, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. It's Jesus saying, look, I'm interested in you. If you want to, I certainly want to. I'm willing. We can sync up. We can be together. We can be on the same team. And the implication is so clear that there will be some who will be victorious and there will be many others who will not be victorious. There will be those who open the door to Jesus and there will be those who do not. And we are reminded of this very sad truth when we come to Revelation chapter 9. That there will be many people all the way up to the very day of Christ's return who absolutely refuse to surrender their lives to Jesus. They refuse to let Jesus in. It says in Revelation chapter 9 verse 20 that there will be those that do not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver and bronze and stone and wood. Idols that cannot see, hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see, the book of Revelation ties everything together and it makes it very clear that salvation is available to everybody, but not everybody will take hold of it. The book of Revelation even goes so far as to distinguish a saved person from an unsaved person. See, in chapter seven, we learn this, where John has his vision of heaven. And if you recall, he sees this great multitude of people in heaven from every tribe and nation and people and language. And they're all wearing white robes, which we know in Revelation is the wardrobe of the saved. And they're holding palm branches, which clearly signifies joy and celebration. John is, is viewing a party in heaven of all these saved people. And in that same vision, John sees the angel put the seal of the living God on the foreheads of his servants. Everybody in heaven in this vision has the seal of God on their foreheads. And they got this before they got to heaven. So in other words, they receive this seal, they receive this mark on their foreheads before the return of Christ. What, what was this seal on their foreheads in chapter 7? This seal was basically a mark of ownership. 
This mark shows that these Christians who are in heaven, well, they belong to the Lord. They are on his team. In other words, they are wearing his logo. It's, it's recognizable. The whole world can see it. These people belong to God. Revelation 7.3 is what describes it. It says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. The point of this detail in John's vision is to simply communicate that before the end of time, before the return of Christ, God will be placing his seal of ownership on all of his people. Before the final judgment, God takes special note of those people who belong to him. His people, his family, his church. People who have put their faith in Jesus Christ through the shed blood of his son on the cross and through the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul tried to communicate this truth multiple times in his writings. One of those places is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. And he says it like this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul also writes about this seal or this sealing in the books of 2 Corinthians, and he also writes about it in 2 Timothy as well. So now with all of that in mind that I've just been talking about the last few minutes, that salvation is available to everybody, but not everyone will take hold of it, how revelation makes a clear distinction between saved and unsaved, and how we learn that the saved are marked. They have the seal of the living God placed on their foreheads. With all of that in mind, would you please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. That's where we're going to be spending a few moments today in chapter 13 and then moving on into chapter 14 today. Now last week we learned in chapter 12 about the devil. We get this formal introduction to the dragon. That is Satan. That's the devil. That's this ancient serpent. We learned who he was and we learned all about his desire to lead the whole world astray. He wanted to kill Jesus but he couldn't do it so now he turns on the church and he wants to destroy the church. And we learn in chapter 13 that Satan has some strategies in how he is going to lead the whole world astray. So we have this vision of the dragon standing on the shore and out of the sea and out of the earth rise these two beasts. And these two beasts, I've shared with you where I land on my study, is they represent two strategies that Satan uses to lead the whole world astray. So the first beast represents godless governments that Satan uses to manipulate and persecute Christians and to lead entire nations away from God. The second beast represents false religions that Satan has created and uses to enslave and deceive billions of people. And now we come to Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, and it says this. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. Can I tell you something that, that still kind of just blows my mind? 
that these few verses that we read right here has caused more anxiety than just about any other verses in the entire Bible. Did you know that? I'm being dead serious. These few verses right here, talking about the mark of the beast and the number 666, it has caused so much anxiety for Christians. In fact, these few verses have led to some of the craziest ideas that you have ever heard of. Now, I want you to be honest here. How many of you get a little bit uncomfortable whenever you see three sixes in a row? And that's okay if you don't, to be honest. How many of you just get a little bit uncomfortable when you see the number 666 in any context whatsoever. I remember years ago, I was in a music store and I was looking for a CD. Now, now this was long before um, you could just download music. I mean, this is back in the day when you actually had to go to a store and you had to buy music. Kids today, they don't understand this, but you who are in my age group, you understand. And I'm flipping through these CDs and I'm looking for a specific one. And I remember coming across this one CD and the album cover, it had the band members' pictures on it and they were dressed up uh, full on makeup and they looked like demons. And right across the cover of the CD, it said 666. And I was like, oh, don't look at that. That's the devil's music. Don't touch it. Put it back. Slide that behind. I don't want to touch it because I don't want to become demon possessed. I mean, that was kind of the, the anxiety that, that that number and that image kind of stirred in me way back in the day. A lot of people have those very emotions when it comes to the number 666. My, my father, as many of you know, pastored churches for over 50 years, and he told me a story about one of the churches that he pastored. He said that he was serving the church, and they got a new phone number, and the number that was assigned to the church, the first three digits of the phone number was, you guessed it, 666. And this did not set well with the congregation. They just could not get used to the idea that their beloved church's phone number started with 666. I have a question for you. If you got a new cell phone and they randomly assigned you a new phone number and that phone number started with the numbers 666, how many of you would demand a new phone number? I mean, I'll be honest. How many of you like, I would not let that stand. I am getting a new phone number because I don't want 666 in there. How many of you would think twice if you received a phone call and you looked down at your phone and the caller ID said area code 666-666-6666. If that showed up on your caller ID, would you answer that phone call? I think most of us would be like, I ain't answering that. Nothing good can come from anybody calling from that phone number. Well, you probably guessed it that, that the church that my father was serving that had the phone number um, 666, that caused so much negative feelings within the church that they ended up changing it. And I think that it was probably the right decision. What is it about this number, 666? The mark of the beast. What, what is it that just kind of freaks us out? I remember one youth group meeting when I was in junior high. Our youth pastor at the time, he showed us a movie about the end times, about the return of Christ and the end of time. This was long before the very popular Left Behind book series and the Left Behind movies that so many people have seen. It was before that, but it was the same kind of idea as the Left Behind movies, that, that there was the return of Christ and people weren't ready and there were those who were left behind. 
I do not remember the title of this movie, but I do remember this one scene from the movie. They had all these people lined up and they were saying, you take the mark of the beast right now. You got to get 666 tattooed on your hand or on your forehead. And if you didn't, they would chop your head off. And in the movie, there was this giant medieval guillotine looking contraption that for anybody who refused to get 666 tattooed on their hands or foreheads, off with their heads. I remember as a junior high kid being freaked out by this. I mean, I was ready to get rebaptized because I just wanted to make sure that the first time I was baptized, it worked. That's how I was feeling at the time. What is it about this number? You know, the big idea floating around these days about the mark of the beast has to do with microchipping, implants. Anytime there's a conversation about implanting some kind of microchip or computer device underneath your skin, you know, that could serve as anything from a medical device or your bank information or a GPS tracker or you name it, it could be anything, people get freaked out about that. They get really nervous about it. And there are people who will say things like, I can't do that. I could never have something implanted underneath my skin because um, I might accidentally be doing something to lose my salvation. I might inadvertently be accepting the mark of the beast in doing that. Have you ever had that conversation with somebody or have you felt that way yourself? Uh, look, can I, can I just say something about that? No one accidentally becomes a Christian So how could anyone accidentally lose their salvation? If salvation comes through your faith in Jesus Christ, through your faith, your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if your salvation comes through that, how could an, a computer chip implanted underneath your skin nullify that? Now, personally, I'll just tell you what I think. I wouldn't want any foreign object implanted underneath my skin, but that has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. It has nothing to do with the end times. It has nothing to do with the mark of the beast. It's just me. I hate needles. I hate needles. And just this whole idea of something sitting underneath my skin, it just kind of creeps me out. So that's my objection, but that has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. So what is it about this number? What is it about this mark? Is this something that we should be afraid of? How should we understand it? Well, first of all, let me offer a word of caution. This is the only place in the entire Bible where the number 666 is used this way. But even though this is the only reference in the entire Bible to this, People have taken this one singular reference and they have built this entire belief system, this entire narrative from it. And as somebody who highly values good biblical interpretation, I can tell you that taking one singular verse and the only verse that ever talks about it and building this entire narrative around it, that can be kind of dangerous. So that's the first word of caution. The second word of caution I would say is this. We can never lose sight of the context. What do I mean by context? To understand the context of a verse, you need to read like the previous five, six, seven, or 10 verses leading up to it. And then read the five, seven, 10 verses after it. That will give you the context. 
And then you need to kind of take a step back and you say, what is the context of the entire chapter? What is happening in Revelation chapter 13? And then you take a step further back from that and say, what is the context of the entire book of Revelation? What is the message? What is happening? Take a step back from that. What is the context of the New Testament? What is the context of the entire Bible? How does this fit inside the context? Here's my concern with many conversations about the number 666 and the mark of the beast. Many of those conversations are based on this one singular verse that's been taken out of its context. So to understand this, we have to remember, first and foremost, the context of this chapter, the context of the book of Revelation. And when we look at the context, the context tells us that this is not the first mark that we have read in Revelation, is it? I mean, if you're paying attention to the context, this is not the first mark that we read about. In fact, um, We've already read about another mark right here in the sermon, right at the very beginning of the sermon. What did we read? We read about the mark or the seal of the living God. And where was this mark or seal placed? It was placed on people's foreheads. And who received this mark? It was Christians, those people who are saved, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what does this mark mean? It represents ownership, that we are God's property, that all of those people who bear the seal of the living God, they are part of God's family. They are on his team. So if we're going to guess what 666, the mark of the beast, just based on the context alone, then our first guess about the mark of the beast would have something to do with ownership. People who have this mark obviously are not on God's team, so they must have this mark that belongs to Satan. You could look at it this way. Those who have been marked by God have a spiritual mark. I mean, I mean, Paul wrote about this, the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment, it's a deposit, if you will, guaranteeing your place in heaven. It's, it's a spiritual mark. And it's like the character of God has been stamped on believers' lives. Those who have the mark of the beast, it's like saying that the character of the beast, the character of Satan, is stamped on an unbeliever's lives. And this marking is obvious for all to see. So if you've been marked by God, the world sees it. If you've been marked by the enemy, the world sees it. So in other words, there are two teams during the last days, God's team and there is Satan's team. You are either marked by God and it shows by what you believe and how you behave, or you are marked by Satan and it shows because your life is saturated by the world. I love how Mark Moore writes about this beast and this mark when he says this, some search for the mark of the beast in barcodes, social security numbers, or subdermal scanners. Yet in their search, they miss the mark. For instance, many people would never allow their social security numbers to be put on their driver's license. But they will drive to movies that drip with the program of the beast. They would never think about getting a microchip put in their hands, but they pick up a tabloid at the checkout line that reeks of the world. We're scared to death of barcodes when we should really concentrate our caution on cable, internet, gossip, slander, materialism, and a host of other pagan ideals that we have baptized as acceptable Christian divergences. At the end of the day, you, me, 
everybody else will be marked as the property of one side or the other. The reference to this mark that we read about in Revelation 13 is really about whose team are you on during the last days? That's what this is about. It's about whose team are you on? What logo of whose team is on your helmet? This is whose team are you on during the last days? So what's the deal with this number 666? You know, well, honestly, it's not all that exciting when you understand what it is. In John's day, it was very common practice for people to assign numerical values to their alphabet. It was, it was common. Each letter or combination of letters in the Greek alphabet was assigned a number. And when you put words together, you add up the numbers and you created a numerical value for that word. It would be like us taking the 26 letters of our English language and assigning a number to each letter. So you have the letter A, well, we'll, we'll give that the number one. The, the letter B, we'll give that the number two. The letter C, we'll give it the number three and, and so forth. You, you write words, you add up the letters, they create a number and then you receive a numerical value for that word and there's actually a name for this it's called gematria and this is what would have been in people's minds when John was writing Revelation 13 gematria was a very common practice during this day and age people would often toy around with the numbers of words and their names there's a great example of this that was discovered in the ruins of the roman city of pompeii we all had to learn about pompeii in our history classes going through school pompeii was that that ancient roman city that was completely covered over with the ash from the volcano vesuvius that exploded it erupted in ad So that was roughly 15 years before the book of Revelation was written. And so you have Vesuvius who in, in modern times has been excavated and there are so many famous ruins from the city of Pompeii. They, they dug it all out and they exposed it so you could see this ancient city. And what they found is they found ancient graffiti on the walls of Pompeii. I mean, walls are covered with graffiti. And they come across this one wall that had graffiti scratched into the wall. And it literally says this, I love whose number, I love her whose number is 545. Now think about that for a minute. It's Gematria. Instead of just writing out her name or scratching her name, it's, it's kind of this little code. I love her whose number is 545. Five. That is the numerical value of her name. It's Gematria. With that in mind, let's go back and read Revelation 13, verse 18. It says, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. That number is 666. 666 is the numeric value for the name beast. Take the Greek word for beast, that word is therion. Apply gematria to it, and what do you get? The number 666. Now, there are plenty of explanations beyond that for what 666. There are some very good explanations out there um, that many will say 666 is actually a reference to Nero or a Nero-like figure 
that was persecuting the church. Others say that 666 is a reference. And many people will try to assign this number to somebody in history or even somebody in modern day. So, oh, that is a reference to, to this as they, their interpretation of Revelation takes them a slightly different path. Or 666 is, is the actual marking that you receive on your forehead or on your forehead. All I can tell you is where I land in my study, my investigation of this text makes me land this right here. That 666 was simply a cryptic way of referring to the name of the beast that we, are, that we learn about and introduced to in Revelation chapter 13. And people in John's day, I believe, would have connected with that more than us. 666, it's the name of the beast. So this entire conversation of Revelation about the mark of the beast and the number of the beast, it has more to do with those who are saved and those who are not saved. You are either marked by God and you are on his team, or you are marked by Satan and you are playing for him. And that fits the context of the book of Revelation, especially as you move on into the next section of the book of Revelation, the next vision that John has. So in chapter 13, what do we see? We see the dragon, which is Satan. He is standing on the shore. And what happens next? These two beasts rise up, one from the sea and one from the land. And at the end of that chapter, people receive the mark of the beast. His name is 666. But then we come to chapter 14, and what do we read? Look at it with me. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now hold on a minute. Chapter 13 begins with Satan, the dragon, standing on the shore. And chapter 14, we have the Lamb, which is Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. What else does it say? With him, with Jesus, is the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, isn't that interesting? When you bring in the context, immediately following the vision of the dragon and his beast, giving out the mark of the beast, writing that mark on their foreheads, which is the mark of the unsaved, now you have Jesus, the lamb, seen with all of the saved, and he has written his father's name on their foreheads. I really do believe that these marks are all about whose side are you on in the last days? Who received God's mark? It was the 144,000, which is, as we've already learned, a symbolic number. It represents the totality of the church. It's the multitudes, like it says in John 7, of every people, nation, tribe, and language. This is God's team. These are people who have God's mark. Then John sees, right after that, another vision of heaven. Look at chapter uh, 14, verse 2. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roaring, rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like the harpist playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God as the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This is a description of those who walked with God. These are the redeemed. I said at the very beginning of this message, 
that the book of Revelation locks in tight this, this truth about those who are saved and those who are unsaved. How it locks in tight this concept that salvation is available to everybody, but not everyone will take hold of it. What it also locks in nice and tight is that God's patience will eventually run out and his wrath will be poured out on all the ungodly. Chapter 14 is an announcement of what is going to come for the ungodly. What will come for all of those who align themselves with the dragon, who align themselves with Satan. In fact, the rest of chapter 14 is this threefold announcement of God's judgment that is gonna come. Starts in verse six. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is actually a good news announcement for those who have been sealed by God, those who are saved, those who have God's mark on them. It's good news because the hour of God's judgment has come. And what does that mean when the hour of God's judgment has come? It means that evil is about to be destroyed forever. And that's why it's good news. Evil is about to be destroyed, but it is not good news for everybody else. It is not good news for those who have not been marked by God, who are not God's property, those who have received or have aligned themselves with, with the enemy. Look at verse eight. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon the great is probably a reference to Rome. It would have been one of those references that would have been very specific to John's audience. They would have known that, oh, we're talking about Rome here. The maddening wine of her adulteries is probably a reference to that country's idolatries, which led to the shed blood of many martyrs who would not participate, where they refused to participate with Rome's sin. They would not recant their faith in Jesus, and they would not go along with these pagan practices. I really do believe that, that the persecuted Christians of John's day, they would have heard this announcement from the second angel, fallen, fallen, Babylon the great, and it would have been welcome news to them because it would have said, hey, our persecution will not last forever. These evil, ungodly leaders who are oppressing us, they are gonna get theirs in the end. God's paying attention. He will rescue us. He's gonna bring this to an end. And then in verse nine, here's the third judgment. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their foreheads or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out in full strength into the cup of his wrath. In other words, they will join Rome in this destruction. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. 
This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor from their, for their deeds will follow them. I've said many times since we started our study of the book of Revelation that this part of the Bible is full of warnings. And here is another warning that if you play on Satan's team, if you wear his logo on your life, if you are living for him, then prepare to meet God's fury. That God's cup of wrath will be poured out on you. This is a warning. That's why multiple times it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Do you hear the warning of what is to come? If there is anything frightening about the imagery in the book of Revelation, I find it here in the final verses of chapter 14. It is a very vivid description of what will happen to the enemies of God. What will happen to those who align themselves with the dragon? It says in verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. If you're familiar with the New Testament, this will take you back to many of the things that Jesus said about the harvest time. Verse 16, so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth. This is talking about judgment. This is, this is judgment. This is the wrath of God. He swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung its, his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside of the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. In other words, outside of the city, they were outside of God's presence. They were among those who were not saved. There is a whole lot of symbolism going on in these few verses. But what is the main point? What is the big picture? That's what I'm trying to help everybody see here. The big picture is this. If you choose to walk with and live for the dragon during these last days, destruction is in your future. And that's hard to stomach. But can I end with some good news? Because I love some good news. The good news is this. You still have time 
to change teams. Do you hear me? You still have time to change teams. You may not have time 10 minutes from now. You may not have time a year from now. But you have time right now. You can declare right now, I'm done living for the devil and I'm ready to live for Jesus. I want, I want to be one of those people dressed in white, sealed by God, waving palm branches, celebrating eternity with my heavenly father. I want to be in that, I want to be there. I don't want to be in the wine press of God's fury. Friends, only you can make that choice. And what is so clear in Revelation is that salvation is available to everybody. But not everyone will take hold of it. I sure pray and hope that if you are right now on the outside looking in, that you will listen to Jesus knocking at your door and you will open up the door and you will let him in. He desires to have fellowship with you. Can I pray for us? Dear God, I just give you praise for today. I, I, I thank you, Lord, that we still have time. I thank you, Lord, that your patience continues. And Lord, our prayer would be that many, many more people would come to your family, would come and invite you in. And Lord, they would choose to put their faith in you, repent of their sins, and live a new life in you. Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, that is also our singular mission as a church. Lord, help us be successful in it. Lord, we give you praise for this warning, but we also give you praise for the good news that you take note of those who belong to you. You will not let evil last forever, and one day we will be with you forever, and you will wipe every tear from our eyes as we enter into your glory for all eternity. Lord, we look forward to that day. Help us to be effective until that day comes. And in Jesus' name, we pray, amen.